Welcome to The Chat. My name is Leah Tsamaglu. Each week on The Chat, we shine a light on the lives and careers of UTS alumni here at the 2SER studios. This week, my guest on the show is Justice Robert Benjamin AM. Robert is a UTS graduate, a former solicitor, and he's now a judge in the family court. Let's have a listen to his story. What did you study straight out of high school? It was law. Straight out of high school, yeah. um, I went straight into law. Yeah. It was a choice of either doing that or going to Vietnam, and it seemed to me that law was a was a better option. So we're talking like um, late nineteen sixties, early nineteen like, fifties. Yeah. Yep. And so <laughs> there was a around that time. Paint me a picture around that time. Were you you grew up in Tasmania? Is that I, I started school in Tasmania, uh-huh. but I came to Sydney when I was about seven or eight. And went to school in the Cronulla area. So, what made your parents decide to move to Sydney? My sister f- was burnt in a with hot water and needed medical treatment. And the best medical treatment was available in Sydney. So my parents moved to Sydney. Oh wow, what a story! Wow. Yes, and she's still around, still giving me grief, as all good <laughs> sisters do. And so you all permanently. Um, we moved to, Sydney, moved and, to and, Sydney, and I lived there. I lived here until about twelve years ago when I was appointed a judge and they asked me to base myself in Tasmania, which I was happy to do. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. So you spent just a, a, a small segment of your childhood in Tasmania to begin with, moved to Sydney. What made you want to want to study law? Um, I think two things encouraged me. One, uh, I had an uncle who was a lawyer in Tasmania who was quite influential on me and I my father had a friend who was a lawyer and they urged me to do it and I I kind of figured it was a was a nice way to earn a earn a dollar and 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 start your life I mean as you do when you start off and at that time um was there the draft there was a draft for there was Vietnam. conscription yeah and I was concerned that I was going to get conscripted because I'd seen a lot of my school colleagues go away to Vietnam and came come back and they went as as boys and came back, many of them quite damaged, and I, I just didn't want to be part of that. Plus, the university students from Sydney used to come round to our high school and hand out brochures at the front gate. Really? Uh, the Honi Soir, I think it was, and telling us how bad the war was. Oh. And so for kids in high school, that was a really powerful thing. I'm not sure that my parents were that entranced by it, but yeah. it, was, it, it got me thinking that perhaps war wasn't a way to solve problems. Where did you study law? Was it at Sydney? No, I did it through the Solicitors Admission Board. Oh, okay. At so that stage, Sydney University was the only one doing law, mm-hmm. and they only took 80 graduates a year. And wow, there was limited. a there was a diploma course which was available, which was open to everyone. And I think something like 800 students started and about 20 got through. But if you were determined, and I was, uh, you could get through. What are your memories of your early university days? I loved it. I yeah. drank too much, <laughs> partied too much. Um, you, you, and I can remember sitting around in, in a tape recorder listening to protest music and drinking red wine and talking about what the world was going to be like. It's a time when you actually identify who you are 
and what you want to do and, and the problems of the world. And when you graduated, where did you work when you first graduated? I worked with a firm of solicitors at COGRA mm-hmm. um, and the children of those solicitors are still friends of mine. Then I started my own practice after about six months, which was either brave or stupid, depending on your I noticed perspective. that. So you started your own law firm in 1976 yep. uh, and continued till 2005 um, before you were appointed a judge. Yes. What, so you, and you mainly practiced in family law, is that correct? Yes. Uh, I, I, no, I, initially I did whatever work came in the door. But as the years progressed, I, I'd started my practice the year that family law came in. And I liked the work. I liked people. And family law is really trying to help people through difficult parts of their lives. And so as, as the years went on, I did more and more family law until at the end, it was exclusively that which I was doing. And if you continued with family law today. Absolutely, Being a yes. judge in the, in the family court. What is it about family law that you... That attracts you to it. It's it's dealing with people, um, many of whom are struggling, many of whom are really decent people who are trying to try to find solutions to to difficult problems. I mean, financial problems which beset all of us, and problems with their children. And as family lawyers, particularly with skills in mediation and dispute resolution, you can sometimes find a pathway. Sometimes the pathways through courts, but fairly rarely in most instances. And it seems a bit more of a social justice practice in law, if that makes sense. It's it's more... It's a combination. Yeah. I and mean, half of the matters that I do relate to where children live and what contact they should have, and, and that can be quite traumatic at times. Mm. The other half is generally in, in the family court are people with a lot of assets arguing over those assets. And that tends to be far more commercial, particularly yeah. when you get up into the millions, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. People get a bit focused on that. <laughs> Although the most important thing we do with, of course, are children. Of course. You've worked as a mediator as well. How does that differ to being, say, a, a solicitor in family law? Well, it's one of the tools solicitors use. Mm. Mediation came in in... New South Wales in the 1980s and it was just another way to find solutions that you sit people down and have a pretty good structure on identifying what's causing the problem and and ways to solve it. And is that for people who are wanting to get divorced and and looking at their assets but they don't they don't they can't afford say a lawyer or oh it's it's just most people the vast majority of people when relationships break down want to solve it. Mm. But they come at it from different perspectives, different emotional levels, and different expectations. And so the whole point of mediation is to try and find out where they differ and why they differ and see if you can find some, some common ground. So it's it's for a for a solicitor, it's it's just a it's a very handy tool because going to court has always been the last resort rather than the first resort. Do you have any memorable cases um, from back in those days, from your own practice? Not that I can talk about. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um, Is it difficult sometimes with some of the subject matter that you come across? Yes, it's often difficult, um, particularly with children with allegations of family violence. Um, sexual abuse of children or allegations of sexual abuse because you can be left 
with the terrible circumstance where you may leave a child at risk of being sexually abused, and we cer- I certainly wouldn't do that, mm. but also you may deny a child a perfectly loving and decent parent. And both of those end up, if you're wrong, and sometimes if you're right, mm. being um, a terrible burden for the child to bear. How do you personally deal with that emotionally? It's, it must be quite taxing um, at times. It, it is. I, I have a strong family connection. I've got a, a, a good, sensible wife. I've got a daughter who's a teacher and, and a son who's a teacher, and they kind of keep me balanced. And frankly, from time to time, you, you get help through counsellors. I mean, uh, none of us are immune from pressure. Sometimes we pretend we are, but most of us aren't. And it's good sometimes to sit down and just offload it, learn good skills um, about mindfulness and those sorts of things. Um, I think whether you're you know, 16 or 60, yeah. they're pretty good tools. What year were you appointed the president of the Law Society? I was president <laughs> of the Law Society in 2003. That's the New South Wales Law Society. The New South Wales Law Society. Could I, could I ask you, what does the Law Society do for people who might not know? It, it, it's kind of a number of things. It wears different hats. Partly it's, it's a union for lawyers to make sure uh, that lawyers have, have a group who can speak for them. Secondly, it's a disciplinary body. So it, it investigates the behaviour of lawyers. Uh, and thirdly, it, it educates both lawyers and government. So if a new law comes in, the Law Society will get some um, skilled solicitors to, to look at the law and, and advise government where it's likely to be good or where it's likely to be bad. So it's a multifaceted thing. And as the president of the Law Society, you were, I guess, the head? I, I was the he- chairman of the board. Of the board. It, it has significant employees who, who work and, and run the place. Yeah. And I think at the moment there's about 30,000 solicitors practicing in New South Wales, so it's it represents quite a large number of um, practitioners. Does it also provide a resource for people who might be looking for a lawyer as well? Yes, yes, they've got all sorts of resources there. If you ring up, they can direct you to specialists. They can direct you to some of the the pro bono areas. Uh, though sadly, there's not a lot of those, yeah. but but they do assist in that respect. What is your view on um, pro bono work? Have you sometimes uh, uh, offered your services pro bono? Most, when, most, you were a, a when I was a solicitor, most solicitors, and I was part of them, did a, a reasonable amount of pro bono work. Yes. You had to balance that yes. because you still had to pay rent and pay your staff. But part of the work we do and part of who you are is to do a bit of pro bono work. And I think that's not a bad thing because it, it makes you realise that it's not us and them, it's us as a, as a community. And it can ground you, I guess, as well. Absolutely, yes. So then in 2005, <laughs> you were appointed a judge. How does that happen? Do you apply? Does no. someone just tap you on the shoulder? No, it, it's still a very old-fashioned system where um, the Attorney General looks around and sees people who he or she think thinks is competent and uh, they asked me if they'll take a job and, and they asked me and and that job was in Tas- was to be based in Tasmania and I was quite happy to do it. it it's it's a nice way uh, to get into the, the really pointy end of, of writing law and thinking law and so I took the job. And why do you think they chose you? Oh, <laughs> that's probably a hard question. Somebody else should answer yeah. that. But, but I did a lot of family law and I, I wrote about it. And, and I'd studied family law 
at, in fact, the University of Technology. Mm. I did a master's degree there. And so I, I suppose they were, they were factors, but um, I don't know how government works or what works in the minds of ministers as they consider those, those factors. You must have left some sort of impression. <laughs> so you moved then back to Tasmania. Yes. How had it changed from... Well, you, you might not have even had many memories of it when you were growing oh, up. No, I, I had family there, so oh, we travelled backwards oh, and lovely. forwards. But I maintained and continue to maintain a house in Sydney. So I have a house in Hobart and a house in lovely. Sydney, which is nice. Sort of. And... I very quickly learnt that Tasmania is a quite a small state. It only has a population of half a million people. And within a year or two, the the court was the court runs well. Um, and so I found that I was spending a, a significant amount of time in other registries, Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, Adelaide. And so I became peripatetic, I think is the right word. And that's an interesting way because you see the disputes in each different state and, and the different cultures in each different state. The courts have two levels. The Federal Circuit Court do most of most of the work, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's complex, but it's less complex than we than the Family Court does. The Family Court there's only about twenty to twenty five judges who do the trial work Australia wide, and wow. we do difficult parenting cases, difficult property cases, international cases in relation to property overseas and children overseas. Uh, And so from time to time, registries get overwhelmed. They get a surge of work. And if you've got somebody who is not entirely busy in one registry, sensibly they move those resources around. Now, this is a a very basic question, but how does being a judge differ to, say, being a lawyer, solicitor, a barrister? First of all, I don't have clients. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you have to a little remove yourself a little bit from the profession, and I become the decision maker. And it's a whole different mindset because if you act for someone, you're looking at ways to promote their case. You're their spokes spokesperson in court. Uh, in court, I have to listen carefully to both sides. I have to try and balance the evidence, balance your own prejudice, because we all have. Overt mm-hmm. and 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 hidden prejudice. So we have to try and think through that, and then make careful and and reasoned decisions. So it's it's intellectually harder, but intellectually more stimulating. And you're predominantly working with cases that is just it's a judicial. It's a I'm a decision. I'm a what's called a Chapter 3 judge under the federal constitution. So, so that's no jury, right? There's no jury, so I'm the finder of fact, and I'm, I'm there till I'm 70 or until I retire, and, or the earlier of those dates. And do you think trials um, benefit from having a jury at times? What's your, what's your take on it? Um, I think in family law, you're better having judges because a lot of the concepts there, the particularly in relation to children's matters, are very, very difficult concepts. Mm. Um, the, the idea of the attachment of children, the, uh, the understanding of the impact of family violence and how, it, how, it, how people manage that and, and come out of it. I mean, you'll often see people say, look, 
they said something when they early in when they come out of a, a violent relationship, and and more information comes out later. That's normal, but it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. And so, I th- I think in family law, having having skilled judges, and and the numbers in our court are about equal between men and women. Mm. Uh, from my perspective, is probably a better way to go. In that in, in that family. specific field. Whereas yeah. some criminal, I guess, criminal cases can be. Well, some criminal juries. some criminal cases are determined by judges sitting alone. Some by juries. And I, I'm not sure how that worked. I've, I've, I keep away from the criminal yeah. jurisdiction as much as I possibly can. Fair enough. Do you feel an immense pressure to make these decisions? At Some, times? Sometimes I do. Sometimes they're not that hard, but yeah. sometimes... They're not as clear-cut? No, and I'll write two judgments. So I'll write one for each party so oh. that I can think them through. I, I think if people come to court and spend that financial and emotional resource, they're entitled to have somebody who'll think clearly about both both sides of the argument. Tell me about that process. So you will, you will write two different scenarios, is that...? Well, no, normally the, the, the facts are the same, the law's the same, and then sometimes you talk, can talk yourself into a way of thinking. So when you've done that, I might say, well, look, I'm not really comfortable with that. How will I go if I tried it the other way? And sometimes I try switching genders because sometimes you've got that... That gender bias that that might be you know one way or the other, so it, it's it's a it, it's a good process I think and and none of us are perfect we're all human beings trying to do the best we can, so at least it gives everyone a fair go when they when they come to court. How did you come up come up with that conclusion to do to well, sometimes well, judge that way? Is that how other judges work? Interestingly, we we train judges. There's the National Judicial College, and when you become a new judge, you go to the college. If you, and it's a voluntary thing, but you go there and you learn about judicial thinking, about judicial behaviour, about running courts. Like any process, that's worthwhile being being trained from time to time. So that's. So you- I don't think judges like call it, calling it being trained, but it's, <laughs> but it, but it's it's being educated. Perhaps a better word. Sometimes the judiciary cops some flack for being, I guess, a bit out of touch with the common person. What do you think about that? Um, I, I can't. I can't understand. I, I can understand where it comes from, mm. but you know, I'm married. I have children. I have grandchildren. Um, I go on holidays, and and I see the best and worst of people. So sometimes our knowledge of the best and worst of people is is better than others. We're not. I think that comes from the judges of the nineteenth century, who were part of a a different class, whereas the judges now are the judges of the post Second World War and the post Vietnam War time, who came from ordinary beginnings. I mean, I wasn't from a wealthy family. Most of my colleagues aren't from wealthy families. They're just people who've aimed to do something. So we're not we're not part of any aristocracy. Do you wear a wig? We used to when we you started. I, I was never comfortable with a wig. I think <laughs> men dressing up at my age is not a good look. Um, so uh, our Chief Justice changed that about six or seven years ago. We wear a robe, yeah. um, but it's it's a very bland robe and no wigs. And now you're working in Sydney, right? Is that correct? I, no, I work uh, still work part of the time in awesome. Hobart oh. and Launceston 
and about half of the time in Sydney. So I balance between the two. When children are involved in court cases and they're giving evidence to you, how do you decide whether to use a ch- child's testimony or not? Is well, they, they, really, they really give evidence. Oh, okay. Most evidence we get from children are through psychologists and social scientists. Um, I'm a bit of a rarity. I occasionally see children, but I see them in very controlled circumstances. So they don't, they don't come into a court as you know it. I'll normally see them uh, with an independent children's lawyer who represents their child and with a social scientist. And, and that might be one or two children a year because often children... So you don't see that many children? No. Um, some, some judges would never see a child in their judicial career because they get the information from the child's psychologist or... Is there, Otherwise, a reason? Is there a reason behind it's, it's that? It's to protect children from the trauma of courts because mm. a lot of what's going on in courts, and we're at the very hard end of it, is the conflict, the, the entrenched conflict between the parents. And we try as best we can to try and shield those children from that conflict. But when you get older children, sometimes they, you know, they want to be heard. And, yeah. and there's some significant argument that at t- from times they... Sh- from time to time, they should be heard. Should be. Can it get a bit nasty? Have you seen the worst in people? I see the best in people <laughs> and I see the worst in people. Some people are, are terrible to each other. They do some terrible things to each other and some hateful things. Sometimes they do hateful things to their children to get square with the other parent. Um, but you know, we, we, we try and, at least as a judge, I'm in a position where I can hopefully protect a child or children from that sort of behaviour. Uh, but conflict is just terrible, on, particularly on children who can't, who aren't protected from it in the, sometimes in family circumstances. And landing in the family court, that's kind of the worst case scenario, right? In a, yeah. In a breakup and a yeah. divorce. Normally when you break up, I can run through it if you like, your, your yeah. marriage oh. breaks up, everyone gets, you know, manages it. Then you, you have to try and sort things out. And often people get together and say, look, and sort it out. And a vast majority do that. If that doesn't work, they go to family relationship centres, which try and mediate a solution. Yeah. Then if they get to court, we know about 95% of cases that start in court end up by settlement. People find a solution. So we're getting that tiny mm. percent of, percentage at the end. That's why perhaps what I see is, is a bit skewed and not what generally happens. But they're often the ones who are in great, greatest need of a solution. Of course. And how do you deal with the pressure of being, have you ever been accused of making a wrong decision? I'm sure that Oh, the, we get appeal all, all the time, you know. <laughs> we, we pretend that we don't mind. Of course we mind. Yeah. But again, our system has, has any decision of mine, I've got to give reasons. And there's a full court of our court who will have a look at my reasons and have a look at the decision. And if they think... Um, it's not the right decision. They can either impose another decision or send it back for another trial. Um, and and that, that's, again, to, to give people a, an opportunity if they think the judge has got it completely wrong. Would that then be seen by another judge if it was appealed? Is yes, it happens? goes to another judge. It doesn't come back to me. So it's someone, I guess, kind of essentially looking over your work. Yeah, but then... The, <laughs> which happens the, which from happens. time to time. And that's, but, but in your industry, somebody's... You've got thousands of people out there who are looking over your work at any particular time. Exactly. Where do you see the judiciary going in the future? Is there a way... Do you see it changing? I mean, 
It, it's a very old system. You said that, I mean, the wigs were thrown out a few years ago. <laughs> well, technology is going to make a profound difference. Yep. The way we research now, I, I have a room full of law books, most of which I don't use because I do all my research online. Uh, a lot of evidence is now given by telephone or by video link. Uh, I imagine we're going to have all sorts of technology which is going to help us in terms of understanding the facts, in terms of better understanding the law. Hope, my, my belief is that it will reduce the costs of litigation and make courts more accessible. Yeah. And we as courts have to think through solutions in that way and we have to be open to solutions. There's no need to bring people to court all the time. Why can't we do it mm. by, a, by a telephone link or a video link? That, that's an extraordinary cost saving. It saves people you know, half a day out of their lives and turns, a, turns it into very, very, very short matters. And do you think more resources could be put in that preventative measure to avoid flooding the courts? <laughs> is it a money thing? Is it a, is it a money resource thing? Or? Oh, money's always an issue, yeah. I think. I mean, in any in any anything that's provided by government. But you've got to have a balance mm. because in family law, often you've got imbalance of power, sometimes with one gender, sometimes with the other gender. And we, of course, do same-sex marriage and... And so you're going to have a powerful and less powerful. We have very sophisticated private systems, public systems that look to settle. Sometimes cases don't need to settle. Sometimes it, it needs to go to a, to a court because the, the, the issues are so fraught mm. uh, and, and there's so, such a tiny percentage because some of the work I do is people who do settle realise it was a mistake a year, two years, five years later, and then have to come back to court then, and it's much harder. So getting the balance right is really hard for the for the people who are going through it, I'm talking about. Of course. You received an Order of Australia yes. a couple of years ago. Yes. Was, Congratulations. Thank you. I was, <laughs> How I was, did that feel? That was, it was, I, I was quite honoured by it. I mean, it was mm. something I didn't expect. It came through, and... And you sort of think, oh well, it's not much. But when you get it, you kind of think, well, that's that's really nice. Uh, and and again, it's it's not something measured in money. It's measured in an acknowledgement. And I was a bit chuffed, and I think my family were chuffed as well. So it, it was it was a pretty good thing to get. That's lovely. And what does the future hold for you? Are you? Well, I, I I have to retire in a few years. Uh-huh. Uh, I'll, I don't think I'll go back to work, to, to work yeah, what, as a lawyer. What do judges do when they uh, retire? I might write a book. Yep. Um, I might ed- teach. I'm involved with the College of Law in their academic board. I may continue in that. Uh, I'll travel a bit, probably be around more for my wife, which may or may not be a good thing. <laughs> but, but no, I'll, I'll, I'll take a step away from the law at that stage. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, Robert. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. That was Justice Robert Benjamin AM talking to me on the chat. That's all for the chat this week. If you like the show, you can subscribe to our podcast via SoundCloud or iTunes or from our website, which is 2ser.com forward slash the chat. The show is produced with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER 107.3. I'm Leah Summerglue and I'll catch you next week.